Welcome to the Starfire Codes podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Amy Pitchell. Today, we're talking to Lainey Liberty. Lainey Liberty is a renowned author, speaker, community leader, and advocate for alternative education. She's considered a world schooling movement pioneer, and she founded Transformative Mentoring for Teens in 2020 to help support the mental health of adolescents. In 2022, Lainey released her first book, Seen, Heard, and Understood, which quickly became a bestseller in the Parenting New Releases category on Amazon. Lainey is also the co-founder and facilitator of Project World School, which offers retreats for teens to create temporary learning communities around the world. Through her experiences living with teens in over 20 international locations, Lainey has developed a unique perspective on the importance of personalized learning and supporting young people's mental health during difficult times. Her work has helped parents, caregivers, and teens themselves build stronger relationships, achieve personal growth, and succeed in life by providing valuable insights, research-backed tools, and practical strategies. Lainey Liberty, Part 1. Lainey, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. You run an immersive travel company for teens called Project World School. Tell us about that and about what inspired you to become active in the world schooling movement. Yeah, well, uh, when we started, there was no world schooling movement. And um, my son and I actually worked really hard to organize one. But I'll, I'll take you back just a little bit so you have an idea of the origin story. And that might help your audience kind of get some background and understand kind of the context of what we're going to dive into. That would be fantastic. So, Thank you. <laughs> wonderful. So like you, you know, I'm from L.A. I know you actually personally from L.A. years and years and years ago. And in 2008, we had uh, an economy crash in Los Angeles, and um, that really affected so many lives. Um, at the time, I owned and operated a branding and marketing agency and had worked in that field for almost 18 years by the time that I left. Um, I knew by the end of 2008 that I was not bringing my staff back because our clients started going away left and right. And so that recognition, you know, of what was what we were facing um, really gave me the opportunity to choose to make a change. Um, I, there was a lot of sort of incongruencies in my life. I am pretty pretty anti-consumerism, yet I worked in advertising. And so, you know, I had a lot of these um, cognitive dissidents and and top that off with my son, who I know you've met. His name is Miro. He would say to me all the time, mom, you're always working. You never spend any time with me. So when the opportunity came, I or when the, the economy collapse came, I looked at that as an opportunity to make a change. And in early 2009, Miro and I set out for what was to be a one-year journey. And we were going to travel from Los Los Angeles and head south and hopefully by the end of the year end up in Ushuaia, Argentina. And then we were going to come back to the States and start over. <laughs> um, that was about 15 years ago. And two things. The first one is we 
never made it to Ushuaia, Argentina. And <laughs> we never returned back to the States to live. So we've been around the world. My son is now 24. And that really led to a lot of changes, transformations, and, and opportunities for us. When he was 13, we were uh, based out of Peru. We were living high in the Andes in Cusco. And to answer your question, to tell you a little bit about Project World School, um, he was craving community at that time, 13, just turning 14. It's very common. It's from a, a biological perspective. It's a time when adolescents start to individuate. Social learning is so important to them. And he was feeling the, the challenges of, of isolation. Even though we were surrounded by so many people, um, he really wanted to have a community of peers, and that's what prompted us to launch Project World School. And um, it is a project to bring teens to different parts of the world to have these immersive learning experiences and to do so in community. Since the launch of Project World School, which is a, a little over 10 years now, we've brought about 200 teens to different places around the world for these month-long trips. And I can tell you, it's been transformational for every single teen that has traveled with us um, and learned with us. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the origin story, the backstory. So that's amazing. You made a conscious decision to travel full time and to raise your son on the road. Tell us a bit about your experiences with that and, and how these choices informed how you chose to approach writing your book. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, many things happened in, in between that you know, the the launch of Project World School and even leaving for our trip and then actually eventually writing a book. I didn't write a book about our travels. I wrote a book about something totally different, but it's totally interrelated. And I guess I have to give you a little bit more origin story for that one. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. Please do. All right. So um, I was actually raised in a household when I was a child. Um, I experienced a lot of trauma and that led to um, a lot of, you know, uh, very specific paths in my life. One of my trauma responses was hyper-independence. And that led me down the path of really digging in to a self-directed healing path. You know, part of, if, if anybody in your audience who has this hyper-independence as part of their trauma responses, you'll recognize this um, statement. I could do it on my own. I don't need anybody to help me. And I could figure this shit out. So absolutely. That, I'm, right. sure, I'm sure many people can relate to that. Right. And that became kind of like my theme in my 20s and 30s. I recognized that 
I had patterns in my interpersonal relationships that were not very healthy. I, I recognized that I had a lot of limiting beliefs about myself. Um, I had done a lot of shadow work and I understood that there was a lot of spaces that were being covered up with shame. And I really wanted to pull this stuff apart and look at it. So as somebody who knew like they were taking their next breath, I always wanted to be a parent. I also knew that I needed to, to look at this stuff, heal it, integrate it, um, really go down this path of healing before I came a parent. I gave birth in my 30s, and that gave me a lot of opportunity to really intentionally um, decide that I was not going to raise my son or my child or children in the same way that I was raised. It gave me the clarity that I needed to unpack and pull apart a lot of the stuff that I was exposed to as a child and recognize that um, this really informed the way that my brain is wired. And as an adult, I don't need to take responsibility for the trauma or the things that happened to me. I need to take responsibility as an adult for my own integration and rewiring because that's me. That's that's what I bring to the table. And without doing that work, I was recognizing that there were patterns that were not serving me. And so I dove deep down into self-directed healing, uh, self-inquiry, psychology, spirituality, everything, every modality that appealed to me, I took a deep dive into. And that really became another job for me. So I, I'm, I'm a really deep dive researcher like you. Um, and for me, it was really one of the starting points that became one of those informative um, parts of our family culture, mental health, mental wellness, and self-inquiry, and self-healing, and accountability for our internal worlds. I approached parenting with that in mind. So that became an active part of our family culture. And as my son and I left, we decided that we were both going to do this trip in partnership. We were both going to be 100% accountable for our internal worlds. And that meant that we had to have the skills and cultivate the ability to communicate and connect in spaces that were very vulnerable. And that really became the thing that we practiced. And so dealing and parenting from that space. We did this in partnership. And then eventually using those tools and skills to facilitate and support teens, it, it was like second nature for us. And the book came about um, in 2022, no, 2021 is when I started to write it. In 2020, when the world closed down, my community was, was reaching out to me saying, Lainey, what are we going to do? Our teens are struggling. And if you look at the statistics of how much 
how high the suicide rate and the mental health challenges that teens had during this period, it escalated to horrible numbers. The mental health challenges in teens still to this day are much higher than the pre-pandemic numbers, regardless of what your stance is on the pandemic. The effects to adolescents have been so tremendous that instead of taking teens to different places in the world to have these experiences, I started to work with teens with the the tools that I learned, um, you know, serving myself and then facilitating in my family environment and then finally facilitating these tools in the Project World School Teen Retreats. Um, I took those tools and started teaching them online to teens. And this was the most rewarding um, work that I could step into. It was so needed and so reciprocated. And the community that I was serving was so grateful. I decided that I could only serve so many teens a year because I'm only one person and teaching a course and keeping it intimate. The most I could include in like a three-month course would be about 10 to 15 teens to take this journey that's not a whole lot of teens that I can serve in one year. So I wrote the book so that parents, caretakers, um, teachers, coaches, whatever, can use this book and use the tools that I've been using on teens with teens to then facilitate greater mental health in in their world. So yeah, that was the reason. The book is called Seen, Heard, and Understood, Parenting and Partnering with Teens for Greater Mental Health. So that encapsulates everything that I was just talking about. Fantastic. In your book, you discuss how partnership and mentorship can revolutionize the life of a teen, uh, yeah. impacting the way a teen learns and, and how they relate to the greater world around them. Tell us more about how you define partnership parenting and how this concept alters the dynamic among parents and teens. Sure. So partnership parenting is not really a thing until we started to call it a thing. So um, I, as somebody who is a deep dive researcher, I read all the parenting books. I told you I wanted to be a parent. Well, I'm going to learn the best ways to do it. And so I read books on conscious parenting and peaceful parenting and gentle parenting and hand-in-hand parenting. And the list goes on and on and on. And many of those modalities have wonderful ideas behind them. And the one thing that stood out to me as kind of a red flag was each of those modalities in some way had a a tinge, a hidden agenda to manipulate and change the behavior of your child. And that to me is an authoritarian paradigm. And I am a self-proclaimed anarchist. So I don't bow down to authority that is not the path that I take. Um, I question everything and that is part of my family culture. And I chose not to raise my son 
in an authoritarian paradigm. Instead, I chose to raise him in partnership. So this was in partnership parenting. This is indeed kind of anarchist parenting, partnership parenting, and it's taking the best from all of those other modalities and stripping away the authority, right? Mm -hmm. So an example would be, you know, trying to change the behavior of your child because it's most convenient for the parent. That's, that's not what partnership is about. It's about give and take. It's about that accountability for um, really communicating what's happening in, in our inner worlds. And it's also shifting the belief that is most common in modern or Western culture. We believe that our children are these empty vessels that we have to pour information and values and all kinds of shit into. And that is not really honoring the human being that is there, you know, in our care. This is manipulating. This is changing the person for the convenience of the parents. And that's control. And anytime that you enter into a relationship, whether it's with a child or a romantic partner, business partner, friend, it doesn't matter. If you plot control, there is um, inequality in power. So it's, it's not an equal power structure. And control usually comes from a place of fear. And so that really is um, the responsibility of the person who is applying the control to uncover why there is fear there. That's your responsibility. If it's fear that this person will walk all over you or fear that, I don't know, that you you are not going to be happy, whatever the thing is, the fear is tied to some core belief inside of you. It's not about controlling the other person. So it's about showing up exactly where you are. It's about that authentic awareness of what's happening inside of you. And if you are triggered by fear, the trigger is an indication that you've got some healing to do. So partnership parenting is like side-by-side -side parenting. So it's not the parent pulling the, the kid to do whatever the thing is. It's about being okay with the messiness of life. And it's about allowing the child or the person that you're in partnership it, it, to have a voice, to be themselves, to make mistakes, to show up as who they are. And that can be uncomfortable. So partnership parenting, I find, is probably the, the truest way to parent. It's, it's parenting from a place of humanity. And this can be the catalyst to really heal so much of that inequality that's that we just accept as part of our daily life. I want to raise little anarchists. I want them to question everything. I want them to know where their power and strength and empowerment comes from. It comes from within, not from without.
So I want to hear more about how this ends up uh, playing out in real life. So, you know, as you're going through um, this paradigm with partnership parenting and you're um, you're focused on not controlling, but um, bringing out the qualities, you know, in in the child and, and trying to stay true to who the child is. How does that end up playing out in real life? Well, for us, it played out in a really beautiful way. We were able to navigate the world as two people, (laughs) right, who are traveling. Um, We were living nomadically for almost, gosh, 13 years. It's been 15 years since we left, but we are um, pretty much uh, residing now in Mexico. Um, But it, it meant hyper accountability and it meant we had to talk about everything so my son it didn't matter that he was nine ten years old he had all access to our bank account he knew exactly how much money we had he had it was the two of us um that were making equal decisions about where we were going what we were going to do how we were going to do it we both decided that we were going to live our lives without rules can you imagine <laughs> we lived in accordance to our core values. And that required both of us to do a deep dive and really define what were, in our case, we used five core values for each of us. So what were my core values were the things that were most important to me? And what were the aspirational core values that I wanted to incorporate into my life? And what were the core values that I was currently living? We did the same with Miro. And then after we both had a really deep understanding of what those core values were. Together, we designed our family's core values. And when a decision came up, there were no rules. However, we took those core values as the um, guide stone to decide whether or not the decision was in alignment with our core values. That meant Nobody from the outside was dictating how we should live our lives. We were not giving our authority away. We were using guideposts and tools to keep us in a very um, uh, like clear alignment. And we didn't need rules. We didn't need rules to determine what to do and how to do it. So we kept each other in check. We had a lot of these conversations about how we were going to live each and every day. And we even collaborated in creating um, wealth in our family. And that was truly partnership. I, I wish all relationships whether it's with a child or with a partner, had this tremendous level of respect, there would be a lot more peace on this planet if we did. So erring on the side of that respect and and coming at this from a place of, of not having any steadfast rules, when you talk to parents, they must really balk at that not having any rules how do you um how do you get them you know past the hump of understanding exactly what that means and uh and implementing that within their own families well i don't have to force anybody to do anything 
first of all, that I am not their authority. You know, my rights end where yours begin. I can, however, live by example. And my son and I have been living quite publicly. Um, we have been writing about our journey. We have been uh, sharing through videos and podcasts and things like that. And just, and we've hosted 10 conferences. So we've been out there. We've been doing this quite publicly for a long time. And we have been also supporting other families with our strategies and structure. And if families are interested in creating greater partnership in their lives, they do come to us. Miro now as a young adult is quite a, you know, piece of evidence that this truly works. And what people are mostly amazed at is the relationship that we have. It's it's authentic, it's close, it's connected. It is one of the most intimate relationships I've ever had in my life. Um having that kind of deep, close connection with another human being based solely on respect. I mean, he doesn't have to hang out with me now. He's 24. He's got his own life, his own apartment. But most people in town see us together all the time because we're constantly hanging out because we enjoy each other's company. And that's really brilliant. And Miro has spoken volumes about how this lifestyle of hyper accountability of your internal worlds has made him a really highly um, emotionally intelligent person. It's made him compassionate. It's made him really vocal. It's made him really one of those people that you reach out to because he's a great listener. He's, he's very empathetic. He's, He's amazing in so many ways. Now I'm sort of, you know, venturing on like proud mama moment, but, you know, interview. But you should be proud. Yeah. <laughs> it's you pretty amazing. should be proud. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we talk about mental health, mm. um, there's another way of looking at this, which you've defined in your work as being a family issue, which, which you've touched on. Um, can you talk about more about why that is and how viewing mental health as a family issue can or should inform our methods for treating mental health overall? Yeah, so I like to use the term mental wellness mm-hmm. because whenever we hear the term mental health, it implies that something's wrong. And health is just simply health, you know, just as, as, as physical health or any other kind of health that you can think of. However, our, our, when we hear the term mental health, most people believe that we only focus on the wellness of self you know, emotionally or spiritually or intellectually, which is all part of it when something's wrong. And that's not true. Um, I like to also, before I jump into the next thing that I'm going to say, I'd like to define what healing means, especially in, in the vernacular that I use. Healing does not mean 
that when you heal something, especially like trauma, childhood trauma or um, shadow work or any of that stuff, it does not imply that when you heal, you get rid of it. It implies rather that we integrate, we make sense of the things that happen. And as I said earlier, as a child, we're not responsible for the traumas that happen to us or the ways we were treated. We're not. This That should never happen. Childhood trauma should never happen. But when it does, as an adult, we're accountable to heal those things. And I don't mean get rid of them. I mean, integrate them, understand how your wiring, you individually, how your wiring was set up, how it was made, and what wiring or belief system you have internally inside of you, right? Because that's what we have to work with. Those are our core sets of of personalities, um, belief systems, um, uh, so many more values, so many more things, right? It comes to us from culture. It comes to us from our experiences and it comes to us through our childhood. And so we are accountable to, to pull apart that kind of wiring and look at the way that we were programmed. And I hear a lot of people use the term, let's deprogram ourselves. Yes, from, from many aspects. That's a great way of, of using that term. But if we can't pull it apart and look at why it's there, what it's doing to our, our current behavior, our current interaction, and then use that information to rewire ourselves, the rewiring without pulling that stuff apart and integrating it, making it a part of our own understanding about self, the reprogramming just pushes down the belief systems, the traumas. It doesn't actually integrate it. So I like to use the word healing with the caveat that please understand that I don't mean by getting rid of the trauma. I mean by integrating that. So that's really important as well. So mental health um, can be and should be a family focus. All of us really need to have tools to understand that when we're triggered, this is indicating that we have a belief system that is usually usually anchored by past experience and a strong emotion. And most of the time, our subconscious puts that information into the background and runs it as a belief. So anytime that we have a pattern of thinking, our brain, which has no clue between the difference of truth and a belief, it or a lie. It just it just runs the thoughts, the habitual pattern of thinking a particular thought in the background, in the subconscious. And the brain says, hey, that's true. Because we think that so many times, it's true. So one of those things could be, 
I am unlovable, or the world is not a safe place, or people are out to get me. And in some cases, it may or may not be true, but that's not the point. If we're constantly approaching uh, situations or life or other people or even ourselves, and we believe these things, those those beliefs will then impact how we relate to other people and the world. So if our children trigger us, then it's up to us to find out what needs were not met when we were a child and why this is upsetting. Shadow work, and I know you're you're really um, passionate about shadow work or inner uh, reparenting or inner child work, that kind of work is really about us taking the helm and reprogramming those belief systems that are deep inside of us in order to live a more fulfilled life and to have deeper and stronger connections with other people. So our children are going to be our best, our absolute best um, uh, teachers. They are because any place inside of us that is not healed, they're Their little salty fingers can touch those wounds so well that it's it's a wonderful reminder that the partnership, the gift of being a parent and the gift of being able to be triggered is the thing that will actually um, create the stronger family connections. And then yeah. when you get into um, the, the whole resonance of, you know, utilizing those triggers to figure out where those wounds are and mm-hmm. to um, to delve into them in, in that way in order to integrate them, um, mm-hmm. how are you utilizing this information to integrate those sorts of generational wounds, limiting beliefs, mm-hmm. and um, and reprogramming of, of our thinking, you know, by and large, by creating that sort of family mm-hmm. culture surrounding that? Yeah. So as somebody who did a lot of work around the abuse that I experienced as a child in my childhood, um, I spent many, many years working, you know, with a, a variety of tools and modalities to be able to do this inner work, everything from self-inquiry to journaling, to shadow work, to all of this kind of work. But for me, because of my hyper-independence, which was my trauma response, I did it myself. You know, I had to do it myself. <laughs> but I, I had a lot of these big aha moments to me, so many of them. And one of them was my recognition when I fell out of control in my own internal worlds, my my response, my reaction, my auto reaction was to try and control my my child, right? Or or try to apply control to other people around me. And as an anarchist, I don't want to impose my will on anybody else. I can share what I'm feeling and that's actually more appropriate. But when I went into reaction mode, it was coming from a place of number one, fear, number two, unhealed needs not being met and and the feeling of out of control control was really, really difficult for me because that was 
predominantly the way that I felt in my childhood, that and invisible, completely dismissed and, and invisible, which also is one of my triggers. And understanding that these things come from certain places, that I have this real deep visceral reaction when I'm in situations that trigger these learned responses from my childhood, I was able to communicate that with my son. And simply to a nine, 10 year old, I was able to say, look, you know, I've been doing a lot of work around healing my my inner trauma. And, and one of those things is because I was so controlled as, as a child, when I react in a controlling way, that's number one from my programming, number two from fear, and number three it's from these deep wounds that I'm still working on healing. All you need to know, son, is that I don't want to be that person and I'm working to change that. So all you have to say to me is when you recognize that, all you have to do is say, you're acting like your mom. And that snaps me out of it, right? I'm able to bring conscious awareness to my auto responses and choose a different response. And there's a lot that goes into that. I need to be okay with repairing the relationship, the rift that I just caused. I'm, I need to be okay being vulnerable and fallible in front of my child. And I need to be okay to stop and, and let the ego sort of go to the background and understand that my true intention is connection. Our mantra and part the mantra within partnership parenting is connection over coercion. So one of the big pieces of advice that I give to every parent that I work with, ask yourself, pause, ask yourself, before I speak these words that I want to speak or respond in a certain way or do a certain thing, is that meant to bring us connection or is it meant to coerce the person? And you may want to do it in the nicest way, like, oh, sweetie, you know, you're so beautiful. You don't need to blah, 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 whatever the thing is, right? Like, you know, you don't need to, if I want my child to stop dyeing their hair blue, I just need to tell them what I think instead of manipulating them. And then I have to be okay with them saying, I want to dye my hair blue. Fine. End of story. It's over, right? Like your body is your choice. Um, my opinion, I'm entitled to that, but I can't stop you from doing the thing because your body is your your autonomy your your you're a sovereign being regardless if you're six or 20 like you are a sovereign being and i need to interact with you in that way yeah so you've talked about how myths are perpetuated surrounding the teen years mm. and what it's like to be a teen um, yeah. Can we talk about some of those myths, including um, teenage impulsiveness and and ways we can reframe our view that might lead to better communication among parents and mentors and students? Sure. Yeah. Impulsiveness is kind of a great thing. <laughs> so 
understanding that from a biological perspective, teens, the adolescent years, from an evolutionary perspective, these are the, the period of time that most revolutions are inspired from adolescence. Most great movements in music or art or creation in, in, in politics and all of these different frameworks come from this time in a human's life called adolescence. And why is that important? Well, it's important because change happens from those that are willing to take risks. And the prefrontal cortex in the teen brain or the adolescent brain is not fully developed. So it's much more difficult to calculate risks and consequences. And understanding that from the parent's perspective, we can then look at, well, of course, they're going to take a risk or make a bad decision. How do we support them in a way that it's not punishment and rewards, but we can help them to start to really calculate and understand what the natural consequences are of your actions in a safe, supported environment. And if we are looking for change in this world, we need to take a page from adolescence and understand that if we overcalculate consequences, we shut ourselves down as adults, right? Because there's a lot of fear around authority. We're going back to that authoritarian paradigm that we're all stuck in, right? If we can find authority in oneself as, as an adult outside of our our um, adolescence, we can learn from our, our adolescents that are, are actually taking those risks and changing and making movements, you know, um, social movements. It's also, I'll tell you from, from a, a conspiracy theorist perspective, this is why teens are being so manipulated right now in this world, because they are willing to take risks and cannot calculate the long-term consequences. And for those that understand psychology and are trying to manipulate a whole generation, they are using that to their advantage. So for us as parents, understanding the biology and the psychology behind development, it'll help us to, number one, support our teens to have greater voices, to not fall victim to the social programming that may not be in their best interest and decide what is truly, truly true for each individual from within, not from without. To hear part two of this interview, please subscribe at starfirecodes.com.